I want to thank ahead of time all of our companions for the journey speakers this morning. Our first speaker is Amy Weigold. Good morning. I'm Amy Weigold. I'm Aspen's mom. Um, We came to Shreveport in 2001, and sometimes it seems that here in this town, what matters, what really counts is what you believe in, not your actions or your intentions or your profession or your family or your friends, but, but what you believe. And I believe in compassion. I believe it is the greatest power in the universe. I believe in acceptance. I believe that each person is holy every moment of every day. I believe that diversity enhances each of us, that what we gain from another's difference is equal to that which they gain from ours. I believe that the mosaic we are is infinitely more beautiful than the unbroken art some wish us to become. I believe that love truly is greater than fear, and I believe that each of us can and does make a difference. I believe that we are tasked with making that difference count, with making this world stronger and healthier and more loving for all beings. And you have accepted this daunting responsibility. Through talents vast and diverse, you help move this world toward a better tomorrow. And that is why I'm at All Souls. Thank you. next speaker is David McCarty. Good morning. My name's Dave. Thank you. And I'm a Unitarian. I am a born skeptic, and I'm pretty sure it's not something my parents taught me, although they encouraged it, I think. But I feel like it's, it's part of my character. It's kind of woven into my bones. Even as an eight-year-old child, it was with me. I remember my parents bringing me to see the renowned magician Harry Blackstone. Anybody remember him? As a grand finale trick, the stage was full of dancers. They were all wearing red, white, and blue outfits for the bicentennial celebration. There were strobe lights and a mirrored ball. This all added to the glitz of the performance. And with the great magician performing dazzling tricks with silks and flowers, illuminated by a tight follow spot at stage right, And I remember thinking, ah, he's about to do something at stage left. And so instead of watching the tricks, I watched the place where the show wasn't. I was studying the shimmering lights, inspecting the shadows, looking for anything out of the ordinary and the sparkles cascading down like snowflakes, bouncing off the star-spangled banners and and dancers in the semi-darkness. And I strained my eyes and I waited. And... I started to get concerned that I was missing the real show. (laughs) And then I saw what I was waiting for. I watched with pleasure as a 20-foot American flag came slowly lumbering in from the wings. And when the house lights came suddenly up and Harry Blackstone whipped the flag away to reveal a fully grown live elephant, I was the only one in the audience who wasn't surprised. (laughs) 
Now, I can't explain why I can't believe what other people believe. I grew up in Southern California, and I spent my junior high and high school years in a place called Mission Viejo, deep inside the orange curtain where cathedrals are made of crystal, and being born again is almost as common as being born the first time. (laughs) My mom and dad didn't go to church, and I'm told they both had their personal reasons for that, but I had the interesting experience of seeing many faiths from the inside through the eyes of my friend. My friends, excuse me. My first girlfriend tried to save me. I admit, on one very impulsive night, I told her I was ready to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and I was on board for about 20 minutes. But then I found my eyes drifting over to stage left again, looking for that elephant. Later, I had a Mormon girlfriend, and she told me all about Joseph Smith and his Book of Mormon, how an angel had led him to an enchanted set of golden tablets in an abandoned mine, how he translated the mysterious characters that he said were reformed Egyptian using a pair of seer stones, and how these words contained rules that outlined a new religion that allowed men to have more than one wife as long as they eschewed a tobacco and alcohol. And it was a fascinating story. It was spectacular, and I just couldn't believe it. Um, but being a skeptic can be empowering. I felt at times that I was the only one who truly got it. And I felt sorry for my friends. I remember this in school when they suffered needlessly during Lent and gave things up. But I also realized I paid a price for it. Because skeptics are they're typically loners. They're always arguing with people. Have you noticed this? <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, I was arguing with a fundamentalist Christian about the age of the earth. And when I brought up the inconvenient issue of dinosaur bones, he told me that they were all put there by the devil in order to trick us into disbelieving the Bible. Now, I love my Jewish friends. They never bought into that kind of malarkey, but, and somehow they seemed to get it, but they, they always had a huge group of people around them, and they also got it. And maybe it's because to embrace some of this stuff in the Old Testament, you have to take things with a grain of salt. I mean, how else do you deal with a story like Job? God essentially ruins a good man's life on a double-dog dare from Satan. I mean, really? It's like something out of a David Lynch movie. But over the years, my skeptical nature has taken on a less vitriolic tone. I, I use it to my advantage in my profession. I, I listen to my patients very carefully. I always consider the distinct possibility that prior diagnoses were just wrong. And in my field, I do sleep medicine. They often are. I maintain the constant awareness that every assumption in the problem-solving process carries with it a degree of uncertainty. And I allow myself the flexibility to revisit those assumptions if a patient's case isn't progressing as I expect it to. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Emerson, no pushover himself, seemed to get it. I remember a patient I cared for when I was a first-year medical resident. She was 61, cachectic, dying slowly and painfully, her body ravaged by a war with ovarian cancer. The oncology attending responsible for her care was an emotionally vacant and socially awkward man, and apparently his most recent visit with the patient's 29-year-old son hadn't gone well. Well, I came around to check on her at about 10 p.m. to see if her pain control was acceptable, and I found her son looking wild-eyed and nearly hysterical, hunched up on the recliner like a pile of dirty laundry. He told me that the night before he had had a dream, and in it, An angel had come to him and told him that everything was going to be all right. 
But when I told that to the doctor, he stammered. He told me there was no hope. And then he just walked away. And tears brimmed in his eyes, and he looked at me imploringly, a drowning man. I put my clipboard down, and I sat down on the edge of the bed. His mother, my patient, was nearly unconscious, breathing shallowly, flying, I hoped, on the wings of morphine. And I put my hand on his shoulder. If there were angels, how do you think they would appear, I asked. My, pre- my question surprised myself, and his eyes came up to meet mine. Maybe the dream was there to tell you that it would be okay, that it was okay for her suffering to end, that it would be okay, that you would be okay. Maybe that's what the angel was trying to tell you. He looked at me and nodded, his face glowing with gratitude and understanding. I wasn't sure what I was doing. I was no priest. But suddenly I became aware that the skeptic in me was a bit shaken. If angels were going to appear, did I really think they would come dancing out of the ceiling on little fairy wings? Or would they show up as bits of wisdom that you might notice if you happen to be looking, if you happen to be ready? My patient died during that hospitalization, and her son told me later that I was the only doctor who really helped him during that entire ordeal. I'm a born skeptic. There's a billboard on the way to Austin that says in big letters, Jesus is the only way to God. I just can't believe that. In fact, I don't believe a lot of what other people say I should. But I believe that people can be good. I believe that good people must work for justice. I believe that love is what redeems us. And service to others is the rent we pay for the gratitude of living. I believe that joy can be the most powerful magic ever made and that the road to wisdom doesn't just tolerate diversity. It requires it. And that, for me, is the elephant which is always in the room. And here's the part that I love. I have no idea how it got there. Thank you. speaker is the president of the board rather than the chairman of the board. You're not Frank Sinatra, right? I am not Frank Sinatra. It was a pleasure listening to to David McCarty and Amy. Uh, Barbara asked me to, I'm the longest serving, or I'm the longest member of this church. I have, not in the, in the sanctuary today, but of the three of us. And I've been a member approximately 20 years. And so Barbara said, you know, why, why am I a member? Well, David kind of talked about it, and Amy talked about it. And... Uh, I'm, a, I'm a member here because Unitarian Universalism pays attention to the here rather than the hereafter. I was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in October, and while, I, while there I went to the Unitarian Church, and the talk was about immigration. And it talk, the, the pastor at the church talked about the, the causes. Why do people risk 
death to come to this country. He talked about uh, the reasons that, that immigration happens in, in the south of this country as it does. And I thought about how difficult it is to, to get enough information to make a, a good decision about serious matters. And that's one of the reasons that I come to this church, is because there's the, we, we all have opinions. We have reasons for thinking the way that we do, and they are not because someone else has told us what to think. It's because we've thought about it. I also, while I was in Lancaster, I don't think that's the only time I went to this church, I, but I felt like I knew those people. I, I knew them. They were there for the same reasons that I was there. And that was really, that was really lovely, the, the community. I feel personally that I'm, I am responsive to my convictions. Uh, UU ethicist Sharon Welsh said, Love for others leads us to accept accountability in contrast to feeling guilt and motivates our search for ways to end our complicity with structures of oppression. Solidarity does not require self-sacrifice, but an enlargement of the self to include community with others. Isn't that wonderful? Why do I come back here was another question that uh, Barbara asked me, and uh, I'm the president of the board. <laughs> and which is the easiest job on the board, and it's been a lot of fun. And the consequence on me is that I, I have a real sense of ownership here. And the little bit that I do is insignificant, but when it combines with the little or more than little that other people do here, it becomes significant. And I, that that makes me happy. It makes me happy to know that I have, I can exercise some option. I can do some things. And, and all of us, uh, I think that's why we're all here, is because it gives us the opportunity to do some things about the things that we think are most important. Thank you. These are your fellow travelers. Did you hear yourself anywhere? <laughs> <laughs>